Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. What we're going to be talking about and and some of it might just refresh your memory about some of the things about the gospel. So tonight will be a little bit like that, hence the chocolate, because it is probably a little bit of biblical studies slash culture slash theology, which some people love and find they can listen to infinitely and some people find challenging. So anyway, the first thing I want to say to you and remind you about as we're just approaching Matthew's chapters 5, 6 and 7 is just to remind you that the gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are not written as a dear diary entry. So they are not Matthew walking with Jesus and night by night writing, Dear Diary, today Jesus was beside the Sea of Galilee and something amazing happened. And then, you know, it's not written like that. They're not like, that's not the way they're crafted. They are pieces of literature that the authors have put together long after the events. They put them together incredibly intelligently. They're not just like randomly shoving things next to each other. They're not scratching their heads. They're crafting pieces of literature to help the early church, to help God's church flourish and remember who Jesus was. And so we have to remember that when we read any part of the Gospels is that if things look like they're strangely put together or there's different um, chronologies between the Gospels or there's different things, that's intentional on part of the author. It's not evidence of mistakes. It's not evidence of them not knowing what went on. It's not evidence of them getting confused. It's evidence of the writers valuing different things at different times and leading us on a journey towards, you know, really knowing who Jesus was. And each of the Gospel writers had a different audience in mind when they wrote their book. And so just as you wouldn't write the same way to people over 60 in our culture as you would to people under 20, you would use different language, different metaphor, different things to remind them. You might structure things differently, just the same way that these writers wrote things differently. So Matthew, in whom the Sermon on the Mount sits, we know was probably writing to Greek-speaking Jewish people. So the Gospel of Matthew is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. It has the most references to the Old Testament. It is steeped in stuff in the Old Testament. If you were a Gentile and you had no idea about the Old Testament, Matthew would be very hard for you to read when it was written. You'd more likely pick up the book of Mark or Luke. So they were kind of, that's where we find ourselves situated in Matthew. And it's important for us to remember because we're not Jews. And we're not first century Jews. And so just there's things that we find hard to understand in these. And that's okay. It's just because it wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. So the Gospels aren't, you know, dear diaries. They were intelligently written. And they were, the Gospels tended to be written long after many of the other books in the New Testament. So Dan, if you put up the next slide, this is a somewhat accurate, although everyone disagrees, Um, don't they? Like if you were to ask like 15 different biblical scholars when were the New Testament books written, you'll get 15 different answers. So I'm not pretending that this is the right one. I'm just giving you a bit of context and understanding about the timing of things in the New Testament. So people even debate about whether Jesus died in AD 30 or AD 33. So we're even starting on randomness. 
So the very first book, the book of James, was still written at least 15 years, probably like 13 to 15 years after Jesus' death. That's like a, like a, it's a significant gap between, and that's the book of James. Then we have Paul, Paul's conversion, Paul writing things. Mark's gospel was probably written in the late 50s, early 60s. We're, that, so we're talking 20 to 30 years after the death of Jesus. That's a significant period of time to be like reflecting on things. More of the New Testament books. Peter and Paul probably martyred in 66, 67. Luke and Matthew written in the late 60s, possibly in the 70s. And then John's writings, the Gospel of John, 1, 2, 3, John and Revelation, not written till possibly 1895. So we're talking about a span of time after Jesus' life, death and resurrection that these people are writing. Um, so time has gone on. Time has shaped the church. Many, many people's memories have been recorded. We know that Mark being the earliest gospel written that Matthew and Luke in particular used some of Mark's content and also another source that they call Q because it's German for source, quell. Or something. I think that just sounds French. Am I making that up? Latin or something? Anyway. And they had snippets of other things, that pe stories people had told about Jesus, memories that people had shared time and time again and things that had come out. So they're put together long after the event. So Matthew in his structuring of his gospel when he had all the stuff in front of him, all possibly his own memories, eyewitness accounts of other people, conversations of other people, 30 to 40, to 50, 30 to 40 years of wrestling with this stuff, and then he writes down what he writes down. So it's not Dear Diary, today we did this. So it's quite crafted. It's good for us to remember that as we're reading it, because it gives, in some senses, more weight to the words that we read. Um, and, you know, that's good. Um, I was going to say something else important and I've just left my mind. Um, so anyway, that's, that's that. Um, so the point I want you to remember is just that the Sermon on the Mount, this particular bit of teaching that we find, has been crafted by Matthew to be a concise kind of like chunk of Jesus' teaching. He's put it together. Did Jesus go up a mountain and spiel like that for three chapters? Maybe. Maybe he did. If he did, I reckon he did it six, seven, eight, nine times. That these disciples who followed Jesus, everywhere Jesus went, new town, new village, new city, he would heal, he would encounter people, he would sit down, he would teach. So this stuff that Matthew writes, I reckon he heard time and time and time and time again. He heard Jesus repeat it and repeat it. He heard it say it in Nazareth and he heard it say it in Galilee and he heard it say it beside the sea and he heard it say it up the mountain and he heard it next to the Jordan River. Like he heard it everywhere. So I think that this is like a accumulation of Jesus' teachings put together in one chunk that Matthew goes like, this is the ethic of Jesus. This is the teaching of Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus has to say about life, I've chunked it here for you. I think that's Matthew's, I think that's Matthew's intention is this. So he's done it intentionally to do that. So you with me? Great. Next thing I want to say about the Sermon on the Mount is that I think it has kind of three well, we're going to look at three distinct layers as we approach Scripture in this way. Um, and this is kind of like 
a framework of meaning for all of us, okay? So if you were to think about your life, I think that this is how most of us frame our lives in understanding who we are. If you look at that smallest half thing, circle, you have your story, my story. Then there's our story, the collective our, the communities that we live in, the ways that we think. And then there's the big picture of God's story that he is writing with all history from creation to new creation. So these are different layers of meaning and understanding that we're going to approach the Sermon on the Mount with. And um, we're going to, at different times, we'll be diving into different bits of those. So just to have a look at that first one, the big story. The story is the eternal story of God, beginning or before creation, and culminating at recreation or new heavens and new earth. That's the story that God is telling with all existence. God is taking things somewhere. The whole thing isn't random, but he's taking history somewhere. And as people, we tap into meaning and perspective and understanding based on God's story where we fit in the story, how we understand how people before us in the story worshipped and understood God. It gives us meaning. It's the story of Israel and Jesus as the fulfilment of Israel. It's grand scheme stuff and it's all about the kingdom of God. So that's one layer that when we read scripture or when we think about ourselves, we can look at the grand, grand story. The next layer we can look at is like our story. Our story is like politics in the sense of real politics, how we organise our life together. Not politics like Liberal and Labor fighting over refugees, not that stuff, but like the politics of how any community group organises itself and works out its interior life. So we have stories that inform us in our story. So the church you belong to has a history and a story and a culture and a flavour that you tap into and helps inform who you are as a person. You know, the, being Australian or living in Australia, there are stories and culture and meaning and slang and ways to belong and ways not to belong and ways to live and ways not to live that are unique for Australia. And we live in that atmosphere and it informs who we are. If you come from a different culture of origin, you have that culture that informs your story. You might gain meaning from the place you were born. You might gain meaning from another cultural story. You might gain meaning from different places other than Australia. So that's the our story bit. And then my story is who I am, how I live. It's my spirituality and ethics. It's my decisions, goals and hopes. It's how I find meaning and existence. Or you need to say how you do. It's like that's the individual story. And I think one of the challenges of reading scripture in any way, but especially as we're coming to the Sermon on the Mount, is the understanding of how we, people living in 2019, primarily approach our sense of meaning. I think that for most, the majority of people who live in 2019, the bulk of our meaning comes from my story. We are so influenced by individualism in the West. It's just the culture we live in. I'm not saying it's wrong or right, but I think to identify where we get our key place of meaning from and significance is really important. Perhaps second to that, we get a bit of meaning and, and significance from our story and probably less than that is the story. That's just 
Western. Um, now, one of, the, one of the biggest indicators of this for you would be when you read the Bible, do you think of its application to your personal life, to your community's life, or to the entire world? My hunch is that most of us, when we read scripture, think primarily of what is this saying to me? That is your indicator that you gain most significance and meaning from your story. You read scripture like it's written to you and it's gonna say something to you. Now there's nothing wrong with that. It does actually say something to you <laughs> and you should read it, but, but knowing the bias of that is just really important. Uh, people in Jesus' day, first century Palestine, would have our story as the predominant place of meaning. They were community-based cultures. If you were to go up to someone in Jesus' time and say, tell me what your dreams and vision are for your life. What's your 10-year life plan? Do you have a career in mind? They would, they would not be able to answer the question. They would have no understanding of what you were speaking about because that's just not the way they were wired, nor was it the way they, were, they thought. Everything was about the family, the values of the family. It was an honor-shame system. It was about tribes and nations. It was just communal. So they might answer that communally, but they'd never consider that when Jesus sat down and told the Sermon on the Mount that it was spoken to them as an individual. They would have heard it to them as a group. Does that make sense? So they're hearing it differently to how we hear it. And secondly, I think they, especially first century Jews, would have been informed by the story and less so by individualism. So I just want you to know that as we read the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to have a bigger worldview than my story. I want us to ask bigger questions than what is this saying to me in my life? I want us to wrestle with some things about what is this saying for us at Central Church and how we organise ourselves as a community. What does the ethic of Jesus say to our nation and how we govern ourselves as a nation? What, Je what might Jesus have to say to Australia? And, and then also, how does this fit into the grand sweeping narrative of where God is taking the history of this world? How do we tap into that, as well as not just making this all about me? So we're gonna do that. It's a great year to do that because we are going to have a state election and a federal election, probably within a smell of each other, and you will get two sausages at the school election day barbecue if you vote at the right school. So it's a, good, it's a good time for us as, and we will be hearing political message after political message and truth stretching and all of that stuff around our national identity. We're gonna hear messages sent to us about who we are, who them is, who are we to be afraid of, how do we protect us. We're gonna hear all of that in our climate over the next couple of months. So this is good that we're sitting in the ethic of Jesus who is telling us a different story about me, us, and them. Is that, is that okay? So that's what I want us to remember as we do this. Anyone need a chocolate? Who said, did someone say, oh, we'll throw you a chocolate quite happily. I've got 20 here. Oh, Michael. Look, I'm just gonna randomly throw. Um, anyone else? Oh, wow, sorry. Anyone like Snickers? I don't. I think they're awful. Um, I just, oh, good on you, Al. Oh, oh, you do, oh sorry, Jackie. I'm just favoring this side of the church, aren't I? Matt, do you need a chocolate? Simon or Jill or Amanda, do you need a chocolate? You, oh, you're on the, you're Simon, you need a chocolate, you're on the fence. Um, 
There you go, Paul. Anyone else? I've still got heaps. Oh, Hannah. What do you put? Mars. Oh. I haven't played basketball for a very long time. Oren. And um, I'll just, you can't really have them, can you? Anyone, anyone else? You guys? Oh, you're not sure? Yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, pass them on. <laughs> I've just got heaps here. I'll just pass the bag around and people can subtly, like, who haven't got one, get one. Okay. Oh, I know. Oh, it, out, oh. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Al. <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount is a grand and beautiful Jesus picture of life in the kingdom. It is his, um, it's his ethic for living. It's his grand vision for how life should be. Jesus is like um, especially as Matthew writes it, because Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. If you have the eyes to see, you will see how between chapters 1 to 4, Matthew deliberately sets Jesus up to look exactly like Moses. He parallels Jesus' life with everything that happened to Moses. They both had dreams about their birth. They were both born after, under tyrants. People both had babies slaughtered at their birth. Both had to escape the tyrant. Both came back at a certain point in their life. Both spent time in the wilderness. Jesus came through the Jordan right before his ministry. Moses just missed out on the Jordan into the promised land. So Matthew's like setting Jesus up to look exactly like Moses. Moses goes up the mountain to get the law. Jesus goes up the mountain to give the new way of living. It's just like the parallels are just, they're beautiful. So every Jew who was hearing this would have seen these parallels. Like Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is giving us the new way to live. Jesus is like unveiling God's plan for life. And, and it just reveals in the Sermon on the Mount, we see so much continuity and discontinuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see the continuity in passages where Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. You know, so he's not saying that's all dead, now here I'm giving you a new way of life. So he's providing continuity between what was said and what was now being reset. But there's discontinuity as well, because Jesus said things like, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you this. So he's like providing discontinuity between the two ways of living as well. He's giving us a new ethic. He's ushering us into the kingdom of God, now present here on earth. He's teaching us how to follow him, how to live together, how to find ease and peace and rest for our souls. And it's wonderful. And we in our Christianity have remarkably been able to in some way boil all of this wonderful following way of Jesus into statements like, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? Are you going to heaven or are you going to burn in hell? Like, that's an evangelistic tool that's really present in our culture, in our evangelicalism of the 80s, 90s, and the 2000s. And it's like we have taken this beautiful, grand sweeping picture of the vision of Jesus for eternal life here and now and into the hereafter. 
and made Jesus instead the Secretary of Afterlife Affairs. It's like we have dismissed the fact that Jesus had much more to say about life here on earth than he ever really did about life in the hereafter. And certainly the people that Jesus was speaking to and the people that Matthew was writing to did not have the same images and beliefs about the afterlife that have come into us. This was long before Dante's Inferno was written, okay? They just did not believe the same things as we do about heaven and hell. And so my challenge to you, and one of the points I want to make, is that as we're reading the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to try as much as possible, every time you see the kingdom of heaven written, or heaven referred to, to not think about the afterlife, but think about the here and now. Now, not every parallel will make sense, but I want us to try and do that. I want us to try and keep our feet on the earth, and not just see these as instructions for how to get to heaven, okay? I want us as a group of people to wrestle with what this says, what Jesus is saying to us about life here and now. So when we read things like, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, you are not to think, oh, all those martyrs, aren't they blessed? They got to heaven quicker than us, and that's why they're blessed. They're blessed because they got... You're not to think like that. You're to think, how on earth does Jesus make a statement that says, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and somehow that's a good thing here on earth. We, want it, we need to wrestle with that because Jesus is speaking to us, not about the afterlife, but about life here our life together, our walk with God. And so when they're talking about the narrow gate and the wide gate, I don't want you in your mind to picture, although you might have seen pictures like this, that somehow there's a narrow gate that leads to heaven and a really wide gate that leads to the inferno in hell. That's not the picture Jesus is giving us. He's talking about the way of life here and now. When he talks about destruction, he's not talking about destruction once you're dead and you're gonna burn. He's talking about everything that you build in your life right now here on earth can be destroyed if you follow the wrong way but blessed are those who follow my teaching and do what I say. So I want us to keep us kind of grounded on earth. Now, Jesus does have things to say at times about the afterlife. And if they come up, we'll get there. But I want to keep your feet on the ground. Can, can you do that with me? And if I take us somewhere strange, you have to bring us back to earth, all right? Last thing I want to say is that there is a really beautiful flow that Matthew gives the Sermon on the Mount. And I want us to read it together, not the Sermon on the Mount, that would take us a long time, um, but just the bit right before it and right at the end, because it's bookmarked with some very intentional things that help us kind of understand the reason that Jesus did this, the reason Matthew put this together, what was happening beforehand, what Matthew says were happening, it just helps us. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, it'll be up there, and I'm going to read to Chapter 5, verse 2, and then I'm going to pick it up at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. 
Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, chunked five, six and seven. And he said all these to the crowds and to his disciples. And then at the end he says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. And I'm just struck by the way that Matthew frames this passage of scripture that we're going to be diving into by first leading it in with the idea of how people were attracted to Jesus. So people were attracted to this man. They saw him like we beheld him last year and they loved what they saw. They loved this man. He healed them. He had time for them. He, he travelled all over, he brought people, anyone who came into contact with him encountered his goodness, was set free and was healed. But that wasn't the end goal for Jesus. It wasn't just like you can get your healing and off you go and live your life again. That, like those encounters and those miracles, they were good. But Matthew leads us to look at the fact that encounter and healing and wonderful things actually lead us on to being taught by Jesus the way to live. And so Matthew has Jesus then with his disciples and with the crowds, many of whom had come from all over, sitting down to listen to what Jesus has to say about the way of life, how to live life. And he finishes his, you know, kind of grand statement with the idea that you have two choices before you. Like, hear what I say and and do it, and you'll be like a house built on the rock, or hear what I say and not do it, and you'll be like a person who built their house on the sand. And people were amazed at his teaching. And I was just struck by this pattern of being attracted to Jesus, then hearing the teaching of Jesus, and then hearing the invitation from Jesus to follow. And so I wanna put that before you at the beginning of our year together, that I want you to be continually attracted to Jesus. I want you to encounter him in your everyday life. I want you to have experiences of the love of God expressed through Jesus. And I want to believe that there is healing and goodness and restoration and transformation for your life and that you will encounter Jesus in wonderful ways, in ordinary ways, in magnificent ways, in mundane ways every day of your life. But that's not the end goal. The encounter is not the pinnacle then we get to hear the teaching, the way of Jesus, the narrow way, the way to build on rock, the way to live, the way to love one another, the way to be a community of people together. 
And then the challenge from Jesus is, will you follow? Will you hear what I say and put it into practice? So I want to throw that out to us this year. That maybe, even though we're long out of school, some of us, that we could consider ourselves fresh students again of Jesus. That maybe we'd get excited by getting a blank notebook and fresh pens. Do you ever, does anyone ever, am I the only weird one that when the first, you know, when school went back and you had like the blank books in front of you and like you got your diary and your time to, it was just like, I mean, yeah, like if you went into school, you just totally like, you're an idiot. But I, I had those feelings of like, here we go again. And then, you know, it doesn't get you longing before like you're sick of it, but that feeling of like, here we go again, it's fresh. I want us to feel that as as students of Jesus sitting in front of him. Some of these passages that we're going to dive into, you are going to have read dozens of times. You are going to have heard upwards of 20 sermons on salt and light. You're going to get another one next week. And I would love it if you come, not with, I've heard this and heard this preached 50 times before, but with fresh ears and a blank page and a posture of, Jesus, teach me something new. I want to trust that your burden is easy and your yoke is light. I want to follow in your way. I want to hear what you have to say to me, to us, to all of us with fresh ears. Can we do that as a church? Like, Can we just like... I think that would be really good, that we just kind of come to this saying, teach me something new, Jesus. I'm open. I'm posturing myself to sit at your feet, to listen to you, not make it all about you. This isn't going to be all about you. This is, some of this is going to be about us, and that's going to be good for us to not just think it's all about me, and we're going to grow together as we sit under the teaching of Jesus this year. So I just want to, as we finish, I just want you to give you a chance to to just in your own heart and in your own mind sit before Jesus and commit yourself fresh this year to listening to his words as if for the first time and following him as a student again. And I just want you to say a prayer along those lines before God, just in your own words. Um, And you don't have to. If you're like, I totally don't want to do this, well, just don't pray. That's fine. You can do that. It's your relationship with God. Um, What's that bit in the Sermon on the Mount? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't say yes and then not do it. Just don't say it. (laughs) Is that cool? So sit before God. Jesus, we know that you are the image of the invisible God. That God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in you. And so Jesus, we know that when we look at you, we see the Father. You are the way to the Father. And we want to know God and his love more and more. And Jesus, if you are the fullest picture of who God is, then you are also the fullest picture of what a human looks like. 
And in this glorious Sermon on the Mount, you give us the way to be human in all of its beauty and mess and challenge. And so Jesus, we say we want to learn from you. We want to hear from you. We want you to allow, we allow you to challenge us, our personal lives, us as individuals. And God, we allow you to challenge us as a church and the way we do life together and the way we serve and love one another. And God, we say we want to hear your voice of challenge to our nation and to the things that you might say to Australia. And God, we want to enter more and more into your grand story, that our lives would not just be defined by our own small understanding of what you're saying, but we'd be swept up into the story of the kingdom. And we'd understand each one of our lives as finding meaning and purpose in your story. So God, we just say, help us to follow you this year. Help us to slowly build our lives on sure foundations. And Lord, as we do, may we find rest for our souls because we all long for that deep within. So cover us as we learn, as we grow, and as we speak together. God, we commit this year of teaching to you. May we sit faithfully in this passage and may we walk away at the end of this year being changed and transformed by what you've done inside of us. Amen. Well, I encourage you, have a read of Matthew 5, 6 and 7 or a listen. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central.